Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show, sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Woolsey. All righty, welcome to the Smart Investing Show. I'm Chase Wilsey, Vice President at Wilsey Asset Management. And yes, Wilsey Asset Management is the proud investing partners of the San Diego Padres. Uh, got a nice W last night, but uh, still been a little bit of a disappointing season, to say the least. Well, if you haven't noticed, Brent is not here today, so I do have Harrison Johnson, our financial planner, with me in studio. Harrison, how are we doing today? I'm doing well. I will say this is keeping me from my exotic world travels. Usually I'm, uh, you know, somewhere. <laughs> somewhere far away, but uh, it's always fun to be in the studio. So. Well, we're glad to have you. And if you do want to join the show, obviously, we'll take your questions. If you're looking at you know buying, selling, or holding a, a particular stock, I'll break down those fundamentals, give you the, the opinion on buy, sell, or hold. That phone number is 833-288-0973. Again, 833-288-0973. And also, too, since Harrison is in studio today, if there's any financial planning questions you have, could be a good time to, to join us on the show here as well. But as always, we do have some topics to get through. We want to talk about here the jobs report, job openings, inflation. Also, too, is pretty shocked by some bank fees that people are still paying. And also, too, looking at investing fluctuations. So with that, we'll get into it. We'll start with the jobs report here. And it did actually reaffirm exactly what the Fed should be looking for, and that is a softening labor market. Now, non-farm payrolls increased by 187000 in the month of August. This did beat expectations of 170,000, but the previous two months were revised lower by a total of 110,000 payrolls. So yes, we beat on the headline number, but those revisions kind of softened the overall market. Now, looking at the three-month average, it would be around 150,000 added jobs for a month. This is well below the average monthly gain of 271,000 over the prior 12 months. And it's kind of in line with 2019, when job gains average 176,000 per month. Now you look at this, it's, it's very important because things are slowing. Having 271,000 jobs per month added, I mean, that is just a very hot labor market. And if we can get to a spot where, yeah, we're still adding jobs. You gotta remember 2019 was still a very strong economy. So even if we're around 150, 176,000, that is still a good labor market. We could even soften a little bit further, and I still think we would still have a good labor market. Now, the other thing to look at here, too, is the unemployment rate. It also increased by 0.3% in the month to 3.8%, but this was largely due to the increase in the labor force participation rate, which increased 0.2% to 62.8%. This was the highest labor force participation rate we have seen since February 2020. With more people coming back to the labor market, more competition could be a big positive for lower wage inflation. And the month average hourly earnings came in slightly below expectations at 4.3%, which is off the high of 5.9% last year, but likely still too high for the Fed. Healthcare and social assistance led the way in report. Um, adding 97,300 in the month. Leisure and hospitality came in second, adding 40,000 jobs. And construction was also strong, adding 22,000 jobs. 
The strength in construction does not come as a surprise considering the strength in the industry. The most recent construction spending report showed a 0.7% gain in the month of June to $1.97 trillion. This marked the seventh straight month of gains, and it does not look like the industry is slowing. Areas in the port that were weak included transportation and warehousing, which uh, were down 34200 and information, which was down 15000 the transportation industry was likely hit with the bankruptcy of Yellow as there was a drop of nearly 37,000 positions in trucking. The information sector was hit with the Hollywood strike as the subcategory for motion picture and sound recording dropped close to 17,000 jobs. Yeah, I mean, it, you look at this and, and there's, again, a little bit of everything out there for people that, you know, I, I think are, are positives and there's enough negatives out there too for the Fed to kind of say, hey, you know, maybe we don't need to increase rates as much. And actually the, the likelihood of a Fed increase on those interest rates did fall quite dramatically after the jobs report came out. And I mean, you, you got to understand here too, is some of those jobs will be recouped from obviously that strike when it does end. I don't have an idea when it will end exactly. Can't go on forever. <laughs> Can't go on forever. So there would be jobs coming back. And, and also, too, as those uh, trucking positions kind of fizzle out, there will be the need to kind of pick that up in other areas. So that could be a benefit here over the coming months to kind of recoup some of those. And I mean, gosh, you, you look at construction, and, and this is one thing that you look around. And, you know, here in San Diego, we were just at the airport this past week, at, and it was just amazing to see all that construction going on there. And, you know, construction, I think, is still going to do quite well. There are some very big benefits to the overall economy here. There's a lot of industries that are quite strong. I will say as well, we, we've talked a lot here on the show about the UAW potential strike that could weigh on, well, let's see, it's going to happen here likely middle of this month. So that could weigh on this month's report or likely October's report on the job gains, likely kind of in the manufacturing sector as the UAW may I say may, most likely will be on strike. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like you said, Chase, there are some goods and some bads, which is, you know, as far as what the Fed is going to do, that's kind of what we're looking for. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me, but um, with the highest labor force participation since February 2020, so before COVID happened, um, you know, everything was going really well as far as the economy and jobs. And uh, now that we are back to that participation rate, that seems like a really big positive. But as far as what the Fed's going to do, you know, we've kind of talked that we think that uh, they don't really need to increase rates anymore. We've kind of got to a point where now we just have to to let the rates do their thing. Um, Drone Powell, though, he's he's really been gung ho about keeping those rates going up. So we'll see what he actually does. Um, you know, I, I think I would like to to see the the rate hike stop and just kind of let it filter through the system, but. You know, we'll, we'll just have to see. Yeah, and I do have some more comments on the labor force participation rate, but it kind of ties in actually to the job opening. So let's go through those job openings, and then we'll kind of circle back to that as well. But if you actually look at the number of job openings, they declined to 8.8 .8 million in the month of July. This was down from the original reading of 9.5 million in the month of June, which was also marked the lowest level of job openings in 28 months. Now, June's reading was also revised lower to 9.2 million. The July reading greatly missed the estimate for 9.5 million openings. Again, 8.8 .8 versus 9.5, that, that's a pretty substantial miss there. Now, job openings have fallen drastically from the record of over 12 million last year as companies have hired many new employees 
and have also become more cautious in the economy, largely due to increasing interest rates. The number of job openings for each unemployed worker was still strong at 1.5, which compares to pre-pandemic levels around 1.2. Again, there's still 1.5 jobs out there for everybody that wants a job. So there's still plenty of work out there, and it is still stronger than pre-pandemic levels. And for context, before COVID at the beginning of 2020, job openings totaled about 7 million. As the labor market has softened, the number of people quitting their jobs has also declined. Job quitters had topped 4 million for much of the post-pandemic period, but that has softened this year in July. Um, and the level in July was just about three and a half million, which was the lowest level in two and a half years. This should be good news on the inflation front as less competition for workers should result in less wage inflation. So this ties right back into that labor force participation rate. Reason is if you have, you know, those job openings out there and there's more workers that are trying to vie for those job openings, well, you might say, oh, you know, the job openings for a hundred thousand, let's say, but then you might find, oh, I could actually find somebody that'll do it for ninety thousand, which mm puts that pressure on wage inflation to the, the downside, which is positive because this is the whole mission of the Federal Reserve right now, and that's to bring down overall inflation. Well, if you're a business and you're having to continually pay your workers more, the problem is you're going to have to raise prices to offset those labor costs. So if the labor costs become less of a headwind, now you don't have to increase prices as much, which should stabilize inflation. So it all kind of feeds into each other. And you know, I don't think we're going to see the labor market fall apart. I don't think we're going to see job openings drop to a million or anything crazy like that. You just have to understand that the labor market and the economy went through these wild swings during COVID. And right now we're seeing kind of more of a normalization. And that's why it's so important. I bring up the, the numbers for job openings before COVID at 7 million. Yes, they've fallen from 12 million, but we're still above where we are pre-pandemic, which shows that the labor market's still in a good enough spot, I believe, and it, it likely still has more room to soften here going forward as well. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a it's a positive from a, a macro economy inflation standpoint. Maybe not the best thing for workers if they want to get paid more. Um, inflation of workers hasn't risen that much in the past couple decades, but that just means you got to be smart with your money and hopefully invest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, kind of speaking to that too, you, you know, we did get some actual data on the inflation front as well. If you look at the Fed's closely watched gauge for inflation known as the PCE, what actually showed little change and few surprises in the month of July. The headline number showed a gain of 3.3% compared to last year, which did rise slightly from June's reading of 3%. And core PCE, which excludes food and energy, was right in line with expectations at 4.2% compared to last year. This was a slight uptick compared to June's reading of 4.1%, and I do wonder how impactful consumer spending was during the summer on prices as it was very strong, up 0.8% in the month of July. This was the biggest gain in six months. Spending was powered by the best ever Amazon Prime Day, the box office hits of Barbie and Oppenheimer, and the Taylor Swift concert. Without major events like these, there could be pressure on spending, which would have an impact on pricing and inflation as well. We still believe hitting the 2% target will, will require some time, but inflation is still heading in the right direction, and there should not be a need to hike rates at the Fed meeting in September. And looking at that, too, is, is it's just so important is like, yeah, inflation did tick up from 4.1 to 4.2, and it's not going to be a straight 
downward line. You're mm-hmm. going to have some periods of, of you know volatility where it could pop back up. But the overall trend, I believe, on inflation is it's still going to be heading lower. And I don't think we're going to see 2% inflation, obviously, in December of this year. No. It might take some time. Maybe as we exit 2024, we could be at that, that 2% level. Mm-hmm. Maybe mid-level next year, we, we hit that two-handle. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's going to take some time. But raising rates much further is not necessarily going to get us to that level quickly it unless you just completely destroyed the economy right so i i think there has to be that balance and i I hope that's what the fed is looking at is saying yes we've increased rates you know the labor market does appear to be softening somewhat inflation is still trending downward here maybe we don't have to increase rates let's just hold off let's see how they work their way through the economy and you know the higher for longer i believe is still likely yeah but i don't think we have to go higher from here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, raising rates at this point are going to, you know, finally have a an impact maybe 12 months from now. So it's going to take time for that to filter through. But it still looks like that soft landing um, is possible. Uh, at the beginning of the year and last year, it's like, oh, there, there's no way this is going to happen. Everyone was saying that we're, we're definitely going to go into a hard recession. But, um, you know, it's looking more likely with the job numbers, with the inflation, um, with what the Fed is doing with rates. I mean, that's it's looking more likely now. And so, as you said, Chase, I think as we get into the middle of next year um, to the end of next year, I think those numbers are going to be a lot more in line with with what we're hoping to get to as far as our target around hopefully in the twos. And and I still really believe because of all the cash that was produced during the COVID crisis, there's still a lot of excess savings out there. I think the number is still like $400 billion worth of excess savings from, from COVID. As you increase rates, well, now you have people, let's say, that have a bunch of cash. Well, that's not going to deter them from buying yet because they don't need to finance it. They have mm-hmm. the cash. Right. So the higher rates haven't necessarily hit the economy in, in full stride just yet. But as that cash starts to wind down, that's where I think the Fed needs to be very cognizant and very careful because all of a sudden that cash is out. Well, now these rates are going to be really, really impactful to financing you know, a home, financing a car, financing whatever it may be. It's really going to hit the economy, I think, hard potentially next year if they overstep and continue to raise rates too much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. you are starting to see the impact of it. I mean, on the personal side with a lot of my clients, 24 months ago, it's like, hey, finance everything you can because you can borrow money for free. Now, you know, when you're looking at a mortgage, when you're looking at a HELOC, when you're looking at buying a car, when you're looking at doing all these things, now it's making sense to put larger down payments down to finance less. Um, so it is having that slow effect on the micro side. But as you said, I mean, these things take time. It's not a lever that you can pull and instantly everything's going to be fixed. Um, when we started this process, we knew that the Fed was going to have to raise rates and we were proponents of that because it was necessary. Now, rates are high. We just need to let them stay high for a little bit longer. And then, you know, inflation should come down and then those rates can drop. And, um, you know, hopefully we can, again, toward the middle to late next year, be in a little bit better position. And the big thing I always tell people about inflation, I, I got this comment on, on social media yesterday. It was just like, yeah, but they're also comparing it's like, you know, eight, nine percent versus last year on inflation. And, and the thing I tell people is like, you can't compare back to price levels in 2019. That's not what inflation looks at. Mm-hmm. Inflation is going to be the year over year price change. Yeah. It's not the price change over the last four years. 
And what we're going to see is the the prices, yeah, compared to 2019, they are going to be much higher next year, the following year. But healthy inflation is good for the economy. You just can't have sustained 8 9% inflation. That's where things get very, very dangerous. But yeah, the, the days of the prices in 2019, those are in the past, unfortunately. And that's exactly why the Fed had to increase rates quickly to combat that. Because if you have high rates of inflation for a long period of time, you know, you can see the prices of goods go up 25 to 50 to 100 percent over the span of just a few years and that that's a real problem yeah and that's where they they do have to be careful and that's where you know as i said i don't think rates need to be increased much further or actually at all and you know but the higher for longer it it should be here because that's the policy mistake they made in the 70s was they started to reduce rates too soon that spiked demand spiked prices again we need to to be careful and it's a very hard line for the federal reserve to to walk and you know everybody has their opinion on what the fed has to do but it's a very hard job at the end of the day yeah (laughs) i i I sometimes feel bad i guess for for them because they're always taking flack one way or another they're taking it on the chin all the time (laughs) (laughs) all right well with that let's turn over to to bank fees here, and I, I was surprised by this, but there's a, a couple different bank fees that have been coming down with the average overdraft fee falling 11% from last year to $26.61, and also two non-sufficient funds fees hit an all-time low average of $19.94. Now, one fee that has been rising is ATM fees. The average ATM fee rose to a record $3.15. This marks the 22nd record in 25 years. Now, fees for using an out-of-network ATM also jumped to a record high of $4.73. If you're using ATMs a lot, you should consider finding a banking network that is convenient for you to avoid those high ATM fees. I was also shocked to see in a bank rate survey that 27% of checking account holders are regularly hit with fees, which can add up to an average of $24 per month or $288 per year. There are many different banking options where you can efficiently use a checking account and avoid these fees. Many banks also waive these fees if you use direct deposits or maintain a certain balance. It's just silly to waste your money on unnecessary fees. Make sure you understand your banking relationship and any fees that may be associated with it. I I mean, I I guess I was just kind of surprised because, I don't know, I've noticed one bank fee, I think, when I moved out of college and um, they converted my college checking account to a uh, normal checking account at Chase, and mm-hmm. I was able to get those fees reversed. But, I, I mean, that was when I was, what, 22? It wasn't <laughs> really something I was paying close attention to. I, I, I'm shocked that many people are still paying fees for, for checking accounts. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely options, whether it's a credit union or, or switching banks or, or whatever, where you seems like you're able to find a way to avoid those fees. And then even if you said, because I think with your Chase, or your situation chase your chase but it was at chase bank mm-hmm. um you were able to call them and they reversed and a lot of times they'll do that if you just yell at them a little bit yeah and, and i mean the the thing i look at too with the atm fees is you know right now i, I bank at first republic which is obviously getting acquired by chase, chase. Yeah. Uh, so i'm going back to chase bank but <laughs> right now the uh atm fees uh, i mean because first republic bank branches aren't that prominent. Mm-hmm. So I pay a, a transaction fee every time I use an ATM. But one of the deals that First Republic has is they rebate those ATM fees. I mean, that's just one thing I, I think about for people is if you have, let's say you bank at, I'm going to pick on US Bank here, but the closest, U, closest US Bank is five, 10 miles away. Anytime you go to the ATM, you either got to drive five to 10 miles or you got to pay the fee. It's like maybe consider getting a banking network. I mean, 
Chase has a huge, expansive banking network mm-hmm. that you can go anywhere really to, to get the, the ATM access and not have those big fees. Or big mistake too, people travel. That's where I like having access to you know Chase's banking network because anytime you travel, if you need an ATM, it's pretty easy to find a bank there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean whether you have a few different banks, I just like having one bank because I like yeah. the simplicity of it. But you know, it, it could make sense to have one bank where you get your direct deposit and you do some of your um, operational checking activities and hopefully avoid fees there. And then if you want to have a, a separate bank for whatever reason, maybe a little bit higher interest rate on the yield, then you can do that. But yeah, I mean, if you're paying fees, take a look at it because there, there's got to be a way that you can avoid paying those fees. Yeah. Well, last thing I wanted to cover here uh, is investing fluctuations. And, and from time to time, I hear from potential clients that they are afraid to invest because of the crazy times we are in. Now, many times this has to do with the political landscape, but I tell them that U.S. politics has always been messy and crazy. Include some examples here that you may remember, and the others you'll have to check the history book. But during the mid-1960s through the mid-1970s, the country was divided over civil rights. Remember in 1965 when Watts went up in flames, or in the 1970s when the National Guard killed four students at Kent State? This led to protests at 350 campuses involving an estimated 2 million people. Also, you can't forget when 35,000 anti-war protesters assaulted the Pentagon back in October 1967. The early 70s was a crazy time period as well, to say the least, as the U.S. experienced more than 2,500 domestic bombings in 18 months from 1971 to 1972. Now, this is where you're going to have to require the history book. You go back to, er, not 19, 1888, Republicans won the White House, held the Senate, and held the House, but just by four people. During a floor vote, If more than four Republicans were missing, House Democrats would demand a roll call and refuse to answer when their names were called. The measure would fail because there was the lack of a quorum. This kept the House from acting for months. Also, too, in 1838, Whig William Graves of Kentucky shot and killed Democratic Rep. Jonathan Silley of Maine in a duel over charges of corruption. Then we look at 1824. Andrew Jackson led the four-way presidential race with 41% of the popular vote and carried 11 states, but with 99 electoral votes, came up short by 33 votes of that majority that was needed. The contest went to the House where each delegate had had one vote and they seated John Quincy Adams, even though he was the runner-up with 84 electoral votes. For the next four years, Andrew Jackson condemned the corrupt process and said it deprived the people of the right to a free election. In the next presidential election in 1828, Andrew Jackson defeated John Quincy Adams. These are just some examples of the craziness our country has been through. Unfortunately, crazy times will continue, but ultimately, good businesses will continue to survive and thrive. This is why we tell people to ignore the noise and focus on the businesses in your portfolio. And it's just good to kind of put these things in perspective. I mean, we've been through all these difficult time periods, and these are just some examples, of course. There's many, many others of the turmoil that our country has been through. But the thing is that these businesses, they get through the turmoil. They figure out ways to to deal with the politics. And that's what you have to understand. You're not buying the politics. You're not buying the political figures. You're buying the businesses that are going to be selling products and selling services. And Perhaps, yeah, maybe they, they hit a speed bump. Maybe there's a new regulation they got to get through. But they'll get through it. They'll figure out the best, most efficient way to do so. And playing the game of politics and investing is always a losing man's game. 
politics and I mean everything, world events, um, what other countries are doing, uh, what's going on in the world in in our culture and our society. There's always craziness going on and it always seems crazier when you're living through it than when you look in the past. It's like, oh, that that wasn't that bad or I don't remember it, it being that bad. So, I mean, if there was ever a point to stop people from investing, if everything is perfect, Oh, now this time to invest. Well, maybe that's the time you don't want to invest because something bad's going to happen again. So, I mean, there's always going to be craziness, and you know, um, the best way to to win investing is just to stay invested through it. That doesn't mean you're going to win all the time, but over a long period, which is the purpose of investing, uh, you're going to do well. Yeah, and got to stay invested in the good companies, the right companies, and you know, uh, ignore the noise out there because you know it happens every single time. And you know, Brent's obviously been doing this for gosh, over 40 years. Uh, I've been doing this now about 10 years. And so now I've seen a couple of different election cycles. And it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican. People are always pissed off about it. And there's always going to be some people that are pissed off about it. And you just have to understand that it really doesn't impact businesses as much as you may think. Yeah, and I know we, we kind of hammer this point a lot that there's always craziness going on. And when you hear that, it it seems like people get it and they're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then when you go through it, they like to freak out. So, <laughs> so you know, it's we keep having to hammer this point because there's always going to be craziness. Oh, well, do we need to make a pivot? Do we need to make a switch? Well, what should we do now? We stick to the philosophy. It makes sense even when times are up and even when times are down and even when they're crazy. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of a great point and, and it actually kind of transitions here. I, I did want to bring up uh, Val in San Diego did call in. I uh, wanted to ask about uh, BRICS adding Saudi Arabia and the UAE and how their potential new currency could affect the U.S. dollar. And I've been hearing a lot about this and it's, again, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? And this is something, again, that it's, I'm going to say outside noise. It, it very well could have an impact on the U.S. dollar. I'm not going to say, oh, it's going to have zero impact. It could have an impact on the U.S. dollar weaken it somewhat, let's say. But the thing that it always comes back to, and, and this is a very, I'm going to say simplistic example, and I don't foresee this happening, but let's just ultimately say that the U.S. dollar disappears and there is a new currency, a, a new world currency, or you know, let's even say we're using the Chinese yuan for fun. And again, these are all hypotheticals. I don't see this happening. Well, if you have a business like FedEx, FedEx still needs to transport goods around the world, around the country. Well, they're still going to make profits. This is not going to be in dollars or won. It'll be in won now instead of dollars. People get too worried about stuff like this and say, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Look at the businesses. Businesses aren't in the game of trading currency. They are in the practice of operating services, selling products, and they'll still be able to exchange that for whatever that currency may be. So I don't get worried about stuff like this. And and it could have a short-term blip on it, let's say. It could weaken the currency a little bit. But longer term, that's what you have to understand with the businesses, is the businesses would still be fine in the long term. Yeah, I think the biggest impact of that would be um, you know, what the government does as far as their spending and their money yep. printing, because we've been able to print all this money because the dollar is the world reserve currency. And if that changes, um, to the won or, or something else, we'll have to be more diligent on yeah. what we do with that dollar. But I mean, that needs to happen anyway, frankly. Um, so, you know, it's <clears throat> I, I've seen out there where people say, oh, well, you know, if, if BRICS, you know, gets what they want and the World Reserve is changed, this is going to substantially impact everyone's life and it will never be the same. I think that's pretty extreme. Yeah. Um, but again, when, when we're looking at investing, 
companies provide value for a form of compensation. And that's where their ultimate value is derived from. And that's what we are purchasing. So whether it's in dollars or anything else, it comes down to the fundamental value that they're providing because we want to own that value. Yeah. And and I mean, the the thing I I just I got to point out here, too, is obviously my example is very extreme. This is the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. I I don't see that happening. And you have to understand it's kind of great following up on this um, topic we just had with the, the craziness of our past. But the U.S. is still the safest place to be in terms of you know, capitalism, in terms of buying businesses, in terms of even our political structure. I mean, you look at across the world, point out here the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't say those places are very safe. Mm-hmm. Even China. I mean, China has had a multitude of problems this year. Mm-hmm. And also, too, I mean, they're not business friendly. People don't feel comfortable leaving stuff in China. So that's where I think you have to understand that the U.S. is still the safest place to actually invest money and and still have, I think, the safest currency for the time being. Well, especially in China. I mean, we don't really know exactly all the problems that they have because the people aren't really allowed to express the the fact that they're, they're... you know, not happy with the Communist Party. Um, in the United States, you know, everyone's on social media saying, oh, I hate this and our country's terrible for that reason or whatever it is. So, you know, our problems are very widely known. But some of these other countries like China and Russia or, um, you know, the UAE, and, you know, it's it's not quite as open as far as what your ability to, to, to have free speech is over there. And not having that doesn't give me confidence in using that as the world's reserve currency. (laughs) So, I mean, that's why I I just, I don't see stuff like, and there could be a a small subset of the population. I I remember looking at the numbers, and I apologize since we don't have the the data here, but I remember looking at the numbers and and the amount of transactions there. Obviously, China is quite large, but, you know, you still have the EU, you still have many other countries out there that likely wouldn't be using this as the reserve currency. Maybe there is a small subset that do shift over to this, but I still don't even foresee that happening because of the craziness that can occur in, in these countries here. Well, I do want to say as well, uh, it's a great question there, Val, but uh, all those topics outside of the BRICS question do happen in our newsletter. And uh, you want to sign up for our Smart Investing newsletter. We actually covered some other things this this week as well. We talked about Subway and how they're actually being bought by private equity. We pointed out the Bud Light sales and, and kind of some other marketing campaigns that they are doing now with football season coming upon us. We talked about crypto transactions and, and what you got to kind of look out for from a tax perspective. And also, too, we did talk about AI, which has obviously been quite hot in the media here as well. If you want to sign up for our Smart Investing Newsletter, go to our website again, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You see there's a nice little button at the top there that says sign up for our newsletter. You can also see past newsletters there as well. But with that, uh, I do want to talk to Harrison since he's here in studio. He does have a financial planning topic today. He's going to be discussing IRMA for people that don't know what IRMA is. Hang tight, Harrison, to describe what that is and some impacts you got to look out for. But while we're doing that, if you do want to join the show, phone number here again is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. All right, Harrison, well, I will turn the floor over to you here and kind of let you cover what is this IRMA and how does it impact people in their financial lives? (laughs) So, there is a tax for over 5 million Americans known as IRMA, which stands for Income-Related Monthly Adjusted Amount. It it applies to Medicare Part B and Part D premiums for single filers over $97,000 of income and joint filers uh, above $194,000 of income and can increase your annual cost by thousands. 
This is in addition to the 0.9% tax on earned income and the 3.8% uh, tax on investment income for, for single filers above 200K and joint filers above $250,000 uh, of income. Those are also Medicare taxes, but they're levied in different ways. With IRMA, there are six income tiers starting at that $97,000 and $194,000 income levels for single and joint filers, and then it caps out with incomes above 500,000 and 750,000 for single and joint filers. So depending on your income, you'll fall into those different tiers and have varying levels of premiums added to your normal Part B and Part D premiums. So with income taxes, federal and state, most states, uh, but definitely on the federal side, there are different tax brackets. And generally, you want to stay in the lower tax brackets if possible. But if you happen to go slightly into a higher tax bracket, it's not a huge deal because only the amount that is above that threshold is taxed at that higher rate. So, for example, um, the threshold separating the 12 and the 22% federal tax bracket for a married couple is around $90,000 of taxable income. So, less than 90 is 12%. Above 90, uh, you jump up to the 22% bracket. So, let's say a married couple comes in and they have $91,000 of taxable income, meaning they're 1000 over. So only that $1,000 is subject to that higher 22% rate. The other $90,000 of income they have is still going to be taxed at 10 and, and then that 12% tax bracket. So what this means, this is what it means to have a bracketed tax system. This is different than the way IRMA is levied. So if your income is $1 above the threshold for IRMA, your and your spouse's Medicare premiums will be subject to that surcharge for a full year. So it's much more important to keep an eye on your income level. To make matters worse, there's always a two-year gap between your income level and the resulting Medicare premiums. So for example, tax year 2023 income will impact your 2025 Medicare premiums. And the problem is we don't know exactly what that income tier is going to be. Right now, the current levels of 97000 and 194000 for joint filers is referring to 2021 income applicable for, for premiums in 2023. So you have to do some estimating on what you want to keep your income under. It's probably going to start around $210,000 or so for a joint filer, um, but we don't exactly know for sure. So you, you kind of have to you know, look at how those rates increase over time due to inflation and, and make, make an estimate off of that. Because <clears throat> again, you, you don't want to go over or else you will be subject to the full effect of that tax. Now, in some cases, IRMA surcharges can be appealed if income has reduced due to marriage, divorce, death of spouse, or reduction of work or income, but it can be difficult and time consuming to get this through, so you have to stay diligent. But this is really important because if you make a lot of money and then retire, your income while you're working will trigger that IRMA surcharge, and then as soon as you go onto Medicare in retirement, you would be subject to those um, higher premiums. So this is something that you would want to appeal and that could reduce or eliminate any additional surcharges that you would have. Now you can't appeal everything. If you have some capital gains from selling a property or business or stocks, or you have some extra income from Roth conversions or RMDs, that will trigger IRMA and you will be on the hook for it. So when you go into retirement, you really wanna take a close look at your assets and income to plan out how you want to realize that income to avoid as much tax as possible. 
Most people, if they do any planning at all, will look at the federal tax brackets and maybe the state tax brackets. But in, in addition to that, you should look at IRMA, extra taxes on Social Security income, extra taxes on net investment income, higher tax rates on long-term capital gains and qualified dividends, um, the potential that tax rates will increase over time. So there's all, all kinds of things to, to take a look at. Fortunately, in retirement, you have a lot of flexibility on when and how to structure your income, especially early in retirement. As you get older, though, you lose some of that flexibility. So if you don't plan out your income, you will end up paying more taxes, and it will get to the point where you can no longer do anything about it. You'll just be paying a lot of taxes for the rest of your life. And it's a real shame because, you know, you, you work your whole life to eventually retire, and if it's not done efficiently, you're just going to be giving that money back to the government. So take the time and effort to plan it out. And I know, Harrison, this is something that we talk about a lot, is a lot of people think of financial planning is or kind of tax planning, I guess you should say, is, is more tax filing, where at the end of the year have, okay, what do I do about my taxes? And it's not necessarily the taxes after everything's been done. The tax planning has to happen now with Irma, not even just for the next year or the current year that you're in, but a couple years down the line. Because you have to really look at how it's going to impact you in so many different ways. It's not even just, oh, how much taxes do I owe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly it, Chase. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, I've got a tax person. I've got a really good CPA. That's good. You also need that. Their job is to look at your income from last year, make sure that you um, you know, get all the deductions that you're eligible for, make sure everything's filed correctly. Um, you know, that looking at last year, though, um, what what tax planning is, is saying, okay, so what can we do now so that your tax bill next year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road is as little as it possibly can be. And a lot of what I see is people make mistakes or rather they, they don't do what they should. And then it's going to cause their tax bill to be higher 10 years from now. And when we flash forward 10 years, there's no way to avoid it. It is what it is. So you have to do the right thing ahead of time. And usually that sweet spot is as you're getting close to retirement um, and then through that tra transition and then going in through retirement, you have to do the right things in each of those years to make sure that you're not going to get killed in taxes. Yeah. I mean, it's so important too, because you know, it, you really yeah, some some people retire a couple of times. I guess they go back to work, but <laughs> most people only retire once, and, and that's really where you've helped. You know, hundreds of people retire now, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's what you've been able to see. And I, I think a lot of people don't even know about the differentiation between the Irma, between you know the the increase in the tax rates, and and you really that that planning aspect is lacking. And that's why I always tell people, you know, if you, you do want to talk to Harrison, the, the first consultation with him is free and it, truly unbiased. Uh, you know, doesn't sell any products, or anything like that. So on a salary here so he gives you the best advice for your situation essentially but you want to set a point with him you can give him a call at the office 858-546-4306 again 858-546-4306 or go to our website smartinvesting2000.com again that's smartinvesting2000.com i'll give you a little secret we try and make the website easy there's a little button at the top too that says free consultation just hit that let us know you're interested in talking to harrison Alrighty, we do have a couple of phone calls here, so let's get into those. Let's go out to San Marcos and let's speak with Phil. Hey there, Phil. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How are we doing? Hey, good, guys. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Hey, I uh, wanted you guys, I, under full transparency, I've done very little research on Oxy. Mm -hmm. They looked undervalued from a PE perspective. And then after you're done, I was hoping to 
ask a question that might be more under Harrison's wheelhouse, if that's all right. Yeah, uh, of course, we, we should have time for that there. I see we, we only have uh, Dave and Carlsbad, so Dave, just hang hang tight with us here. We'll get through Occidental, and then uh, we'll, we'll cover that financial planning topic there as well. But all right, looking at the numbers here for Occidental Petroleum Corporation, their ticker symbol is OxyOXY. They are in the oil and gas E&P industry. Kind of surprised by this. The short percentage of float is 9.3%. I say I'm surprised by this because I know Warren Buffett does hold quite a large stake in Occidental Petroleum. So interesting that the shorts are essentially battling Warren Buffett, who has a quite large treasure chest there of cash that he can use. Uh, Looking at institutional ownership, it is 79.6% of the company. Turning to the valuations, as you said, the P.E. ratio does look pretty good there at 10.9 times. It is slightly above the industry average, 7.9, but but generally a 10 P.E. is, is quite attractive. Price to sales look good at two below the industry average at 2.1. Price to tangible book value is a little expensive at 2.8 compared to the industry average of 1.9. And price to cash flow of 4.5 is below the industry average of 4.7. Looking at the earnings over the last year, kind of surprised by this down 41.8%. I do know obviously last year oil prices were quite favorable, so I'm assuming that's what has hit the earnings for Occidental. Looking at sales over last year, they are down 6.5%, and the industry is up 1.5%, so that's interesting there as well. Now, turning the dividend, I, I'd like to see this a little bit higher, quite frankly. Dividend yield is just 1.1%. They do only use 10% of their earnings to pay that out. Obviously, they did have elevated earnings last year, so I'd want to see more on a normalized basis what that payout ratio would be, but it could have the potential of having that dividend increase if their earnings are able to stabilize there. They were able to buy back a, a decent amount of stock as well. Their buyback yield was 6.1%. Turn to the balance sheet. Current ratio is 1, so they do have liquidity there. And debt to equity is 0.7 compared to the industry average 0.5. But I'm okay with the debt to equity of 0.7 there. The profit margin of 21.6, a little bit below the industry of 26.1. Uh, still a good profit margin, I'd say. And return on equity at 20 and return on invested capital at 13.7 also look good to me as well. Looking at the current price for Occidental is $64.57. The 52-week high is $76.11, and the 52-week low is $55.51. I do see the year-to-date return. It's up 3.1%. Over the last one year, it's down 4.7%. But wow, three-year return, 426.3%. So it's definitely done very well over the last few years here. If we go forward to December 2024, though, I do see estimated earnings per share of $4.93. It would give us a target sell price here of $81.84. Again, the current price $64.57, so we still have some room for appreciation. Gives us a forward PE of about 13, 13.1. So it would actually be put in our hold category for the time being. Now, as I said, I know Warren Buffett has quite a large stake in this. I I would want to understand how much he owns of this business in terms of the shares outstanding because there's one of two ways that this can go, essentially. There's been speculation that maybe he's accumulated enough or maybe he just wants to buy out Occidental Petroleum, which would obviously send the stock price higher. But if he has a very large stake, if all of a sudden he changes his mind in a few years or you know, I, I hate to say it, but he, we talked about this on the show last week. I think he turned 93 or 94 this week. If something did happen to Warren Buffett and the new guy said, we don't really want an Occidental Petroleum, they start to 
reduce that that amount in oxygen of petroleum, that could swing the stock lower very, very quickly. So, I mean, it's nice when Warren Buffett's involved, but there is also risk to it if he changes his mind or the investing lieutenants change their mind as well and start to get out of it as it, it, it would depress the stock price there. So just a couple of thoughts that I would have on that, Phil. And, and I do think as well that, that oil prices, they've started to come back up, which has been, I think, a little favorable for the stock. I don't think they'll go much higher. I don't think they're going to fall off a cliff either. But, you know, playing in the oil space is always somewhat risky because of the volatility of oil prices, what generally sends these stock prices up and down. Appreciate it, Chase. Um, For that question, um, so I'm not as patient sometimes as the team there is as far as selling equities. And there'll be instances where I have equities that I've had for 10 to 14 months. And then when you go and list the sell, you've got different options on, you know, FIFO, highest cost, tax lot optimizer. Mm-hmm. I think my question is, is are there strategic ways on which method you want to sell your equities to try and take advantage of paying the less capital gains tax? That's really my question. Yeah. So, I mean, it's going to depend on the amount of the capital gains that you have, if there's any other losses that you have, and the time span of the holdings. I would say if you're going to sell a lot or a position um, and you have the difference between short and long term, if it's a gain, you definitely want to go on the long term side. So that'd be first in, first out. If you have a loss on something that you're trying to get rid of, I would say if possible, Possible, you'd want to take the short-term loss because short-term losses are able to offset short-term gains. Um, but I mean, the other thing you'd have to look at is, well, what is your gain going to be next year? Are you planning on doing more sales? Because when you're when you're engaging in tax planning, you're you're trying to reduce your tax liability as consistently as possible. So you don't want to, you know, avoid any taxes at all this year and then potentially have a whole lot more next year if possible you want to lever uh, you know spread that out the other thing is you know capital gain taxes on the long-term side are taxed at a different bracket so um, in, in some cases you might be able to realize a long-term gain but the tax rate on that is going to be zero percent um, if you're a married couple your income's under $120,000, it'll be 0%. If you're single, um, under $60,000, it's going to be at 0%. So um, it, it really depends. But I, I think, um, you know, as I'm talking through this, I would say if you have a long-term gain, you can go ahead and sell a long-term gain over a short-term gain. If you have a, a short-term position, then I would say um, short-term losses are, are what you would want to realize. Yeah, and I know generally the the simplistic way to do it is just kind of FIFO is going to be your your safest route just so you don't incur any short-term gains. And right. Kind of, kind right. of be pushed there. But there is, obviously here, Phil, there is some strategies that you can implement if you are looking at, you know, selling a position. And I think, as you know, Phil, but, you know, we generally won't sell positions that frequently. And if we do sell a position, many times we sell the whole position, so we don't really play the game the lots. There are some times where we will do tax loss harvesting. There are some times where a position may now be, let's say, 12% of the portfolio. where We want to pair that back because it's become too over-concentrated. So, we don't play that game too frequently, but there are some options there from a, a tax planning perspective, I would say. Yeah, if you're if you're buying and selling and you know your your holding period is ten to fourteen months, I think a default FIFO would be best. Um, if you are gonna sell something that is at a loss, you can go ahead and, and go ahead and do that. The another time where it can make sense to sell 
the the shorter term positions um, would be if you have a really large stake in something and you're trying to decrease the value of that stake, then selling the positions that you have that have a shorter gain is going to get you a larger amount of proceeds from that at a, at a lower tax consequence. You still wouldn't want to realize any short-term gains if you could uh, you know, on that. But I mean, in some cases, people might have like a lot of Apple that they've owned since yeah. the 90s. And oh, okay, I've got $600,000 of Apple, and I've kind of been buying it, what should I sell? Well, sell the positions that you've had for, you know, two, three, four, five years, as opposed to the ones that you've had for 20, 25, 30 years, because you'll be able to reduce your exposure to that, um, again, with a, with a lower tax consequence. Yeah, great point there. Does that help there, Phil? Absolutely. Hey, appreciate all the advice. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. Of course, you too, Phil. Yeah, have a good uh, Labor Day weekend. Right. Nice three days. Yeah. yeah you <laughs> all right. Thanks. All righty. Well, uh, that does open another phone line here. Phone number is 833 But as promised, let's go out to Carlsbad and, and speak with Dave, who's been waiting very patiently there. Hey there, Dave. You're on the Smart Investing Show. How can we help you today? Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, appreciate uh, you guys taking my call. Of course. Um, just wanted your thoughts on um, Jabel. It's JBL. Mm-hmm. Um, I've owned it for a number of years, and it's been doing fairly well. And I'm just wondering if it's maybe getting ahead of itself a little bit or what your thoughts are. Of course. Yeah, well, well let's take a look at here at uh, JBL. Uh, I think it used to be JBL Circuits is what I used to call it there. But the company name is JBL Inc. Their ticker, ticker symbol is JBL. They are in the electronic components industry. Short percentage of float here, 3.5%. Eh, nothing too special there. It's a pretty standard, I would say. Looking at the valuations for the company, price to earnings 163 below the industry average at 23.3. I see price to sales at 0.5, below the industry at 0.8. Price to tangible book value is 8.2, also below the industry average of 17.5, and price to cash flow 8.1 below the industry of 14. So all valuation ratios look pretty darn good there, especially compared against the industry. Now looking forward uh, to the peg ratio, we do see it as 1.2. That's also very uh, positive considering the five-year estimated growth rate to 11.2 percent. That's that's quite a strong gro- growth rate there. Speaking of growth, looking at the earnings over the last one year, they're up 2.8 percent while the industry was down 6.1 percent, and sales were up 5.4 percent when the industry fell 12 percent. So uh, it's, it's pretty good. It looks like they've been able to kind of ward off against uh, some of the headwinds the industry's been facing. Now this is strange. Dividend yield is 0.3 percent. Uh, payout ratio is 4.4%. Quite frankly, I never understand why a company even pays a dividend if it's going to be 0.3%. At least make it worth your while and pay over 1%, I would say. NVIDIA is like that, like 0.02 or something like that. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> very interesting. It's like, might as well just preserve the capital or make it worthwhile for the shareholders, is my personal opinion on, on the dividends there. The buyback yield, though, for J-Bill is 4.4%, so they have been buying back stock, you know, which does help with the earnings per share growth as well. During the balance, sheet current ratio is 1.1, so they have liquidity. Debt to equity is um, a little bit high for me at 140% or 1.4. You know, it's not anything that I would panic about necessarily, but I would want to understand what's going on with that debt level. Has it been increasing lately? What are the interest rates on that debt? Are they going to have to refinance some of that debt, which could hurt their interest expenses because they'll have to refinance now at a higher interest rate? So definitely some thoughts there on the balance sheet. If companies have a higher debt to equity, I do want to understand where that debt picture is and where it's going over the coming years as well.
Now, looking at the net profit margins, 2.8%. That is below the industry average of 3.5%. I see return on equity is very strong here, 35.8%. And return on invested capital is 19.3%. Two strong ratios there. Current price for J-Bill, I do see it's $115.42. 52-week high is $117.29. And wow, the 52-week low, $55.26. I see year-to-date the stock is up close to 70%. So congratulations there on that. Dave, it's it's done very well this year, and over the last one year, up close to 100 percent. Three years, 241 percent. So it, it's been a great business to hold there. Market cap, good size, 15.1 billion dollars. If we go forward for the company, we go out to August 2024. I do see estimated earnings per share of nine dollars and thirty cents. That would give us a target sell price here of 154 dollars and 38 cents. So it, it does look still attractive from a, a forward valuation perspective. There it looks like it's trading under 12 and a half times the, the future earnings. And it looks like earnings are still anticipated to grow for the company. So there's a lot of promising factors, I would say. But one thing uh, I will say is we did hold J-Bill in the past is I know they had a heavy concentration with Apple. And uh, Apple always worries me because they are obviously a great partner because they're so large. But also they have so much capital that if they start to look at saying, ah, we're going to do the components on our own. That would really hurt a company like J-Bill, obviously, if they still have a large concentration of revenue with that one particular business. So that's really the the big thing I would say. I talk about the debt and also to the concentration of their revenue. I would really want to understand that there, Dave. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate your insight and uh, maybe worth kind of hanging on to at least for a bit here. How, how much of your portfolio does it make up there? Small. Oh, it's, small. Uh, I I bought it years ago, probably around 20. It probably makes up about 5%. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's over-concentrated. I mean, it's definitely still a, you know, sizable piece of your portfolio. So you want to make sure you don't have any missteps there, but it's not over-concentrated. So if the the numbers, as I said, look good, if everything checks out with the business, I'd say it'd be worth holding there. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for calling in there, Dave. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. All righty. Well, that does open another phone line here. It's 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. I did want to talk. I know last week we spoke with Tim in San Diego, and he, he gave us one ticker symbol, and then he also asked about Disney. We didn't have time to cover that last week. So wanted to talk about Disney here and uh, kind of a perfect time to cover it because, obviously, they were in the news yesterday as they're having some issues with Charter and, and Charter, um, you know, our cable company there, and they're having issues with the, the channels like ESPN, ABC, and they're actually not currently going to be on Charter because they can't get that contract negotiation. And Charter had some strong words about the cable industry, which uh, they said is kind of broken at the time. And obviously, too, Disney is battling uh, the strikes in Hollywood as well right now. So they're having a, a large variety of factors at this this time that they're having to deal with. And I haven't looked at the numbers on Disney in quite a while, so I, I was curious what they do look like. The difficulty w- with Disney, obviously, is there's more to the business than just them having, well, Disney, ESPN, ABC, they're not just a, a content company. They obviously have the, the parks, they have the cruises, they, they have a lot of different things that they're in in terms of their businesses. But with that, we'll look at the numbers here for Disney. The ticker symbol again is DIS. I know it's very popular with people. Uh, short percentage of float here is 1.1%. Institutional ownership is 65%. Not surprised to see the large larger retail crowd for a 
company like Disney as it is a, a fan favorite for many people. Price to earnings, 66.2. That's not very good. The industry is not material at this point, though. Price to sales is 1.7, below the industry average of 1.8. Price to tangible book value is 23.9, below the industry average, which is not material there. And price to cash flow at 19.7 is above the industry average at 18.9. Looking at the earnings over the last one year, they are down 29.3%. While sales were up 8.3%, so I have to understand what's going on there. And I know that the transition to streaming is, I'm going to say, costly. And there's different ways that the content's going to be amortized. And it's really going to have an impact on the income statement. But also, you got to look at how it impacts the cash flow statement. So there's a lot of strange things that are kind of happening behind the accounting with the transition to streaming for these businesses. I do see, though, the five-year growth rate on earnings per share is 20.1%. That does look quite attractive. No dividend for Disney at this time. I, I thought they used to pay a dividend there. I could be mistaken on that, but I, I know that they likely cut it during COVID. Obviously, it looks like it hasn't come back yet. No buyback yield for Disney. Looks like they haven't been buying back stock, and they don't have the cash flow at this point to do so. Looking at the balance sheet, I see the current ratio is 1.1. Good liquidity there. And debt to equity actually I, is is strong at 0 0.5. I, I thought their debt to equity is honestly higher. The intangibles for the business is 44.8%, so a good amount of intangible assets there. Net margin, 2.6% above the industry average, which is a negative 0.4%. Return on equity is quite weak, though, at 2.3%, and return on invested capital is 2.9%. Also, like to see that ratio higher, but that would come with higher earnings, higher margins over time. Now, looking at the price for Disney, it is $81.64. I see the 52-week high here, $118.18, and the 52-week low, $80.53, so right near that 52-week low there. Uh, as I said, the stock was pressured yesterday with the issues facing them in charter at the time. And also year-to-date, stock is down 6%. I see the returns just have not been good over the last one year, down 27.5%. Over the last three years, Disney's down 38.9%. Over the last five years, it's down 25.7%. And the 10-year return even is only a positive 47.6%. So definitely not good for the current holders of Disney. Now, is it worth holding going forward here? We go out to September 2024. I do see estimated earnings per share of $4.96. It gives us a target sell price of $82.34. So actually right around the current level of $81.64. Now, I will say that this is based off September 2024 numbers as they do report on a fiscal basis. We are going to be getting close to September 2025 numbers, which that looks at $5.81. So, you know, it's potentially worth following as there could be a lot of short-term expenses that could kind of disappear and their earnings would lift quite quickly. But right now, I'd say be patient with it. I wouldn't be chomping at the bit here and buying it at these levels. There's definitely a lot more research that, that would need to be done. And frankly, I'd, I'd almost be patient, wait to see how this fiscal year ends. You may miss it, quite honestly, and it could go higher, but I'd rather be patient, make sure that you understand the business, understand what things are looking like before just jumping into it, as they could still have further issues ahead for Disney. Yeah, I mean, it's a massive company, so it's a lot to get your arms around. I see in March of 2021, that looks like when they peaked down, they're down around 60% since that point. What did, what did they peak out at? Uh, like 197 something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah March 12, 2021, 197, 16. 
Um, now it's at 8164, so it's about yeah 59% down. Yeah, I mean it's just something that a lot of times people, you know, you buy something because of the name, and mm-hmm. and you know, uh, I'll pick on the Apples, the Teslas right now. It's just because of the name of the business. It, I mean, things can fall very quickly, and and well-established companies they can run into problems as Disney has, and, and the stock, well, it it can fall, you know, 50, 60 percent as we've seen with the Disney, and you know, there there likely could be a time to buy Disney, but. Right now, as I said, there, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of uncertainty. I would like to get this at even more of a discount before even stepping into a company like Disney. So. Well, that was a, a great show here. And I uh, want to thank you for listening to the Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purposes only and should not be used as investment advice. If you'd like to discuss in more detail your investment needs or have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Chase Wilsey or else do Brent Wilsey at 858 858- Five four six four three zero six again eight five eight five four six four three zero six. Also, please visit our website at smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. And for more daily educational information along with investment tips, go to our Facebook group, Smart Investing with Brent and Chase Wilsey. Have a great weekend. We will talk more next week. I did all that. And may I say